Hello and welcome back to Filmonomics at Slate It. I'm Colin Brown, your podcast host, and each week I'll be taking on a deep dive into the industrial machinery of the film business. Joining me on that weekly exploration is a slated member with their own inside knowledge of cinema's various moving parts and shifting gears. For those who haven't tuned into our podcast before, what you will hear are excerpts from my interview with our guest speaker, interlaced with a few observations of my own. The overall aim here is to try to demystify the global supply chain responsible for getting films made and seen. This week's guest is Jeff Grace. If you check out his slated member profile, you'll see that Jeff is one of that growing tribe of independent filmmaker, the entrepreneurial multi-hyphenate. He's a stand-up comedian, he's a writer, he's a producer, and he's also an actor who made IndieWire's list of 25 best breakthrough performances in 2013. He has guest starred in Mad Men, How I Met Your Mother, and Castle, not to mention playing lead roles in films such as It's a Disaster and The Scenesters, two cult-gathering films, both of which he produced. Jeff's journey began as the founder of a four-person comedy troupe known as The Vacationeers. His early break came after writing and appearing in a comically paranoid YouTube short called Google Maps. That went viral, attracted the attention of CNN, and landed his group a revenue-sharing gig doing branded content at, well, you probably guessed it, YouTube's parent company, Google. Today, Jeff's a full-fledged filmmaker, having cut his directorial teeth on his endearing feature-length debut, Folk Hero and Funny Guy that will be seen in theatres and on-demand platforms in early summer. It's been a decade-long uphill trajectory for Jeff, one that's also given him a crash course in what it takes to persuade potential investors to actually back films. You know, the first business plan I ever did for a film basically said Blair Witch was made for $15,000 and that film went on to make $250 million. Therefore, you, the investor, will make a 5,100% return or whatever, you know. Or, you know, you come up with these all these like once every decade examples. And on this business plan, it was a lot more reason. You know, we were basically saying, hey, the most likely scenario is you'll make no money back. That's actually the statistics will say. Now, finding the urge to hype one's pet projects and even going so far as to downplay investor expectations, well, that's not something that comes naturally to most filmmakers, which is what gives Jeff's insights more added weight. For a creative storyteller who so often earned his living seeing the funny side of life, Jeff is remarkably serious-minded and practical when it comes to the money side of things. Tellingly, Jeff's own college degree is in economics rather than film, and instilled with this business sensibility, his instincts are also those of a practitioner who sees the filmmaking process from multiple angles at once, both in front and behind the camera. It's a realistic, hyphenated state of mind that has served him well, as you'll hear now. I think, you know, I, did, I never went to film school, so I actually teach at a film school now, but the reality is that sometimes film schools teach a little bit too precious of a auteur theory about things. I mean, sometimes the, they can make a writer-director feel a little bit entitled or a little bit, you know, I'm the great visionary. And trust me, there's probably some great filmmakers who have that kind of cliched, you know, I am the artist, I'm the director, but having produced some films... I think I come at it from a pretty pragmatic sensibility. You know, I, I understand what costs money and what doesn't on a, when you're shooting. And I think it helped me as a director manage the budget better because you don't want to keep asking for expensive things early in your shoot and then steal from yourself down the road. You really have to prioritize uh, and work with your producer, in my case, Ryland, to come up with a kind of sensible plan. And I think we had a good working relationship in that regard. I think it helps that I produced before. And then obviously being an actor, I think, makes me a better, you know, I'm probably more of a, an actor's director. 
in that I, I really do think about it from the point of view of what I like in terms of direction. And I think, I guess I just tend to think very character, you know, from a character perspective, uh, maybe as opposed to some directors who might come from like music videos or something, you might think of things more in a, what's a cool visual, what's a great visual trick. And that's obviously aside as a director, you know, I continue to push myself to learn those things, you know, how, how can I become a better visual storyteller? You know, I think every director is trying to work on their work on their weaknesses and, and keep their strengths honed. Listening to how Jeff sees his work from so many professional perspectives, I then asked him whether he was simultaneously thinking as a producer when writing the script for what became his directorial debut. Well, that's a good, it's a good question. I, I think I, well, this was not maybe the smartest script to produce because there were so many, I wrote it originally just thinking, well, here's the story I want to tell. And, and I wrote it for a Sundance Labs application. So there you're just hoping you catch someone's eye and then worry about how to make it later. And this was a film that had a ton of uh, locations, and, and it was a road movie, and so you're constantly in bars and, and clubs and rock venues, and it's so it's not a cheap movie to make. It's not one of those, like It's a Disaster is a film I made prior to this, which was all set in one house. So that's a much more contained movie to make, whereas on Folk Hero and Funny Guy, we basically had a move every couple of days. You know, sometimes we had two moves a day, three moves a day, um, and it just really bites into your, the amount of time you can be shooting. For the exteriors, we shot for four days on the road. We basically, I drove over the a skeleton crew, my AD and our first camera assistant. Um, basically, we went up the eastern seaboard just basically looking for cool stuff. <laughs> being like, did you, you know, on walkie talkies, being like, did you get that? No? All right, we got to turn around. So if you can imagine a literally a literal two steps forward, one step back road trip up the United States uh, from Atlanta to New York City. Um, that was our journey. For those curious about the film that Jeff is referring to here, let me fill you in a little. Folk Hero and Funny Guy is a comedy about a successful singer-songwriter who helps his friend's struggling comedy career and broken love life by hiring him as his opening act on his solo tour. The funny guy in question is played by Alex Karpovsky of Girls fame and the folk hero by Wyatt Russell, the rising 22 Jump Street star who also happens to be the son of Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. It's written in the vein of films like Sideways, Swingers and Once, and it combines Jeff's own stand-up touring experience with that of his real-life musician friend Adam Ezra, who also wrote the original soundtrack that you hear being performed in the film. When it came to raising development money, Jeff, his producer Ryland Aldrich, and Adam Ezra all participated in what was a highly amusing Kickstarter campaign designed to get the film to the start line of actual production, and in the process convinced their real target, prospective equity investors, that this project was really happening and that Jeff's team knew what the hell it was doing and would spend their money responsibly. Proof of concept and early execution, if you will. We sort of thought that Kickstarter was sort of a good way to do a lot of things at once. It was to sort of make the project more tangible. You know, I think I think when you're just a script and a email address, uh, it's nice to have a video that kind of contextualizes who you are, who your producer is, that you're real people, that you've gone a little bit above and beyond. And, you know, when we set out to do the Kickstarter campaign, it was really interesting. But Kickstarter themselves reached out to us, you know, a person called us on the phone and said, hey, you guys might want to lower your goal or just so you know, your goal is pretty high. And we really couldn't do that at that point because we had already started. But, uh, you know, they were super helpful and very and very uh, interactive with us, which was great. The Kickstarter campaign was nothing if not detailed in its financial requirements. The target amount was set at forty eight thousand five hundred dollars of which 4,900 would be allocated to insurance, another 5,700 to business, tax and legal fees, and so on and so forth. And the giveaways were interesting too. 
included the offer of a portrait done in watercolors by star Alex Karpowski of any backer who pledged $256 or more. In the end, the total amount raised was $50,003. So I asked Jeff how he settled on that target number so early on in the process. I don't remember why that was a number. I, I think we, I think because we just said, I think our thought was if we just set it to $50,000, it seemed like just some random number. But if you said like 48.5, then oh, these guys must have really thought about exactly what they need the money for. I think the one thing I would tell listeners of the show is that I don't think Kickstarter is an easy solution. I think that you might be better off making a much lower goal and just using it as a way to like get an email base and a fan, you know, fan base or you know just a, a group of support. Because um, one thing that was good from this is we had about 500 different contributors who all were you know supporting the film and curious to know more about it and kind of feel like they're a part of it well because they are and so we you know we had contributions as high as five thousand we had some as low as you know some there's you know little as a dollar just to, which is great just to support you know just because like now they feel like they're a part of it i mean it did just what the name kickstarter is it was it provided us the seed money to pay our lawyers to open an llc uh, to do a little bit of developmental work on some posters and some other things like that that we thought we needed to kind of go out to investors with. And what's great about that is you don't have to tap into investor money before you know you're, you've made a commitment to actually shoot the film. A lot of investors don't want you to spend a dime until you're basically a week before shooting and they know that all the money is going to be spent to shoot the film from start to finish. Having gathered his team and raised the seed money for Folk Hero and Funny Guy, the next challenge was to raise actual production funds from real investors. And this is where Slated's own equity fundraising platform entered the equation. Rylan and I, my uh, producer, we probably, I mean, I think we had a spreadsheet of literally 500 phone numbers and contacts. And that started with, you know, two or three contacts. Uh, so that was like over the course of a year, we probably called, spoke to, emailed 500 different people. Uh, we used a, a Slated for a lot of those. Uh, we, we kind of scoured Slated to basically see if there's anyone that might be right for us. I think we literally send out 400 messages on, on Slated and maybe 20 people get back to you. And maybe of that, you get five or six real serious conversations. So it is, you know, it is a bit of a needle in the haystack situation. Uh, and I think this is going back a couple of years. So Slated was more in its infancy. I think now there's even, there's more of a financial uh, infrastructure to that as well, right? Where Slated actually helps raise money. On Slated, we basically went through the filters, you know, looking for films under a million dollars, looking for comedy. There were some other variables I think you could select um, to kind of help you figure out who would be most promising. We knew we were going to be shooting in Atlanta, so we basically sent an email to everyone in Atlanta, anyone that was on Slated that was also Atlanta-based. You know, you have to talk to 100 people to get one good one. That's probably a normal ratio. You know, you sort of just shake the tree far and wide, and you try to be somewhat strategic about it. One of the investments initiated through Slated was with Jeff Dizich, the CEO of Equity Trust Company, the nation's largest provider of self-directed retirement plans. As is typical with most online introductions of this kind on Slated, once contact had been established online, those discussions go offline and become much more individualized and personal. You pretty much get off the Slated platform pretty quick once you're in discussions and usually these people want to meet with you in person or talk to you on the phone. And uh, Jeff was a you know very active investor in the film came to visit set and things of that nature. So yeah, so you, it just depends. I mean, I think, I know a lot of filmmakers have had a lot of success with Slated more recently, because I think, I think there's a lot more tools that make it a little easier to filter through. And I think 
Also, I think now that investors have been on there a while, they start to improve the filters of what they're really looking for. It's often been said that humour can help you win in negotiations, which of course made me ask Jeff whether being funny helped in his own pictures, especially on a film called Folk Hero and Funny Guy. If investors know you're a comedian, do they expect you to make them laugh? I think you want to be enthusiastic. I don't think your goal is to be a funny guy necessarily because you're asking them to give you some serious money. But you, you know, I think you want to pre present that, you know, hey, I'm the, I'm the voice of this film. And, uh, you know, I think we, me and myself, my Ryland and myself are pretty personable guys. I think we obviously have some laughs with these folks. But we had a you know, really put together a business plan. This is the fourth or fifth film I had produced, but the first I had written and directed. So I had learned a lot, too, from, you know, the first business plan I ever did for a film basically said Blair Witch was made for $15,000, and that film went on to make $250 million. Therefore, you, the investor, will make a 5,100% return or whatever, you know, guaranteed. Or, you know, you come up with these all these like once every decade examples. And on this business plan, it was a lot more reason. You know, we were basically saying, hey, the most likely scenario is you'll make no money back. That's actually the statistics will say. Right. And then there's a decent chance if we played a top tier film festival, which we did, that the film could get bought for more money than it's made. But that's still, you know, five percent chance that happens. And then we're all out and everyone's made two or three, four times their money back, most likely. And. You know, and there's another scenario, which is that the distributor buys it, but maybe the MG doesn't cover everything we make. And then we kind of have to, you know, see how the movie performs in market and then you'll get more money back. And so I had made a film called It's a Disaster that I acted in as well. That was like more close to like a break even kind of point. And then on this film, you know, we basically got uh, a pretty high MG on it, but we didn't get it's not enough to cover the entire budget. So we'll have to see when the movie comes out May 12th. You know, hopefully it'll perform well. We're working with Gravitas, who's been awesome so far in terms of working with us on the marketing. I just watched a new trailer today. Uh, so well, if the movie performs, then, you know, investors should do well. The backstory negotiations that led to Gravitas picking up those worldwide rights open up their own fascinating window into the factors that need to be weighed up when evaluating distribution offers for a film. Gravitas saw the movie at Tribeca. We had a sort of a lot of quarters at first, different distributors, and a couple, maybe I would say too good to be true deals kind of didn't be, end up being true. So we ended up spending a lot of our summer trying to hit, lock down some bigger deals with some bigger distributors who then a lot of times with these deals that once you get into the nitty gritty of the deal terms, they can be sort of not great for the filmmaker, um, even though they might be more prestigious. Uh, well, they're, they're good for the filmmaker. Let me rephrase that. They may not be good for the, the investor because sometimes you're a top tier distributor doesn't always have to pay top dollar because they know you're the, they're the most prestigious company and therefore would offer a lot of clout in, and cachet to the, the filmmakers themselves. But they may not, may not be the best deal for the investors. So we try to spend some time to balance those. And there in a nutshell is the dilemma that so many filmmaking teams face when selling their film. Do they go for the highest offer in an attempt to pay back their investors as quickly as possible? Or do they think about their next career moves and go for a deal that pays less money up front, perhaps, that minimum guarantee or MG that Jeff is talking about here, in return for higher exposure from a distributor with more of a presence in the marketplace? In those instances, an investor who's left still waiting to recoup must find it doubly frustrating when that director or breakthrough star hits it big on their follow-up film. That's a big challenge of film, right? It's the, the writer-director gets all the credit. Uh, and I'm speaking as, from the perspective of a former producer too, you know, it's really the writer director. If the movie does well, 
oh my God, this is the hot young talent in, in Hollywood. Let's hire him to work on new stuff. Let's make a movie. You know, there's plenty of examples like Colin Trevorrow who went from making uh, Safety Not Guaranteed to directing the largest grossing movie of all time in the Jurassic World. So uh, I don't know if his investors, you know, partake in some of that success. Hopefully that that is the case. Um, but not. But it's not necessarily in the, the contract, right? So it's a challenging process. But the goal is for every filmmaker, you want to, your investors to make their money back because then you can keep making films of this size. So that, that's everyone's motivation. And then there's an even bigger question hanging over independent filmmaking as a whole, namely, what is the future of independent cinema itself? How do those working in the non-studio margins even manage to make a sustained living in this fragmented world of competing distractions and those Walt Disney franchises eating up our attention spans. It's tr it's challenging because independent film is I've done a bunch of them now. <clears throat> I think the economics are challenging, no doubt. Um, there's such a glut of content now coming from both the TV world and the you know online YouTube. Uh, people's attention are so much more split that I think it's it is getting more challenging for everybody. Whether that's a new Netflix series, whether that's a new independent film, what have you. Even though everyone's dying for new content. It's really hard to get eyeballs on it. So, you know, for me right now, I'm spending a lot of time trying to get maybe a television show made. I shot a pilot for E! last year. We're kind of shopping around um, starting in April. Um, they actually didn't pick it up, but there's other networks in, in, interested in it. And then I'm, I have two other pitches I just did for Sundance for their episodic labs, two different stories, one about a, a Korean adoptee in Wichita, Kansas, um, sort of a stoner slacker Korean adoptee story, and then another one about the world of polyamory. And so uh, getting a TV show would be kind of my next ideal scenario because you have all these fixed efforts and costs in making a, anything, a movie or a, or a TV show. But with a TV show, at least you get to take all that effort you made for casting and getting everything together, get the project greenlit. Now you can spread that out over a couple seasons of content possibly and still make movies in between depending on you know how prolific you are i'm supposed to direct another indie film this summer that i'm not producing but uh, i'm hired to direct called birdie and that's a film that will have challenges because it's mostly it takes place in the 90s in boston and it's mostly it's high school kids so it's a lot of kids that are you know either under 18 or 18 to play younger the challenge of that of course is that kids that are 18 years old often aren't big Hollywood names yet. So you have a challenge of how do you finance that? So kind of working on that a little bit with a, another producer, you know, so it's, it's a challenge. And I think that like, everyone wants to keep making movies, but it, there's just more and more of them out there. So there's probably more losers and fewer winners proportionately than there used to be. If there's anyone who knows the economics of the multi-platform storytelling world, it is Jeff and his original comedy collaborators. They practically pioneered the emerging business model that we're seeing playing out today online but in a much more mature and measurable way than in those early experimental years. Back in 2008, for example, 15 hours of video were being uploaded every minute. Today, at least 400 hours are being uploaded in those same 60 seconds, and they're being done across some 3 million different YouTube channels. Thanks to Google's aggressive use of recommendation algorithms, more than 1 billion hours of YouTube videos are currently watched every single day. That's a mind-boggling amount of content production. Well, it definitely is a viable thing. Weirdly, we were one of the first YouTube partners, my comedy group, uh, The Vacationeers, which was myself, Todd Berger, who directed and wrote It's a Disaster, and Kevin, Kevin M. Brennan, who was a producer, my producing partner on It's a Disaster and The Scenesters, and then Blaze Miller, who acted in all those films with us. 
And those guys were filmmakers in their own right. So we all kind of ended up, you know, Kevin's writing on a show, is the head writer on a show called Still the King. Todd's just shot, finished shooting a movie called Cover Versions. Blaze just uh, wrote and produced his first film called Home State. So we're all doing a lot of stuff, you know, kind of independently. And we do work in each other's stuff a lot. Um, there is a model, I think, where you can make a YouTube channel where if you make two to three videos a week, that might be a more predictable and monetizable business model than making an independent film every year. It just, for us, it was a sort of, it was sort of when we were coming up through the ranks of YouTube, there wasn't that economy yet for that. And people that kind of stuck in there longer, I, I think sort of reap the benefits. But I don't also know if we wanted to be the guys that were making two or three viral videos a week and having to do all that kind of fan interaction on YouTube. But to, maybe we're just like a little bit too old for that or something, I don't know. Um, you know, if you're, if I, if I grew up in the YouTube era in high school, maybe I'd have more of us, you know, that would be more of my hardwiring. Well, perhaps YouTube could be the place that Jeff returns to when it comes to casting that high school film project he referred to as his next directorial project. Well, that's the trend right now is to cast what they call influencers. And the, it's sort of a word that, uh, evokes eye rolls from indie filmmakers. But, um, a lot of indie filmmakers have opportunities now to make films with, if you cast quote unquote influencers, which means, you know, if they have uh, people with two to three million Instagram or Twitter followers, and then usually what those films will do is actually put in the contract that if these people are going to be cast in the movie, they also have to tweet a certain number of times or post on Instagram or post videos. And it's sort of a way to theoretically leverage social media to get more eyeballs on the film uh, for lower costs. And I think the I think the verdict's still out on whether those films perform or not. I mean, my buddy Todd Berger did a film called Cover Versions, which I saw a test screening of where I think that model worked really well. I think he cast really interesting people who were really good actors first and foremost. And then the fact that they had social media followings was sort of a secondary benefit. And I think that makes the casting process more challenging. Um, so that is a model. And then there's also models of films that are a little bit more, a lot of the YouTube space I think is sometimes more driven to be, um, it's like younger content, right? So there are kind of more goofy, silly uh, films that might star a bunch of YouTube celebrities. Uh, but in the case of Todd's film, he was trying to make, you know, proper indie film with the best cast he could find. And, uh, and I think he kind of uh, rode the line there, which is not the easiest thing to do. And maybe it'll get easier as more of these YouTubers learn how to act in conventional cinema. You've probably noticed by now that one of the recurring themes here is how often Jeff and his vacationeers have collaborated on one another's projects. A decade on, this symbiotic pooling of creative resources still continues, although the interactions now take on different forms. Yeah, I, I mean, that's 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 100%. I mean, what, you know, all of us work on each other's films, whether that's as actors, and maybe you're not getting much of a paycheck, but you're just, you know, you're sort of lending your services to, you know, to be an actor in a film. I've done that for a bunch of filmmaker friends. I've connected my a friend, Michelle Morgan, just directed a film that was at Sundance called L.A. Times. Um, which I connected her and Ryland, my producer on Fokker and Funny Guy, put them together on that. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of cross-pollination, no doubt. As you get older, maybe you're not holding the boom mic <laughs> on your friend's shoot. Obviously, in film school, that's what you do. And I teach, you know, right now I'm teaching directing for actors at Relativity Education, which is a college down in uh, L.A. Center Studios. And... You know, and those kids, when they're doing movies on the weekends, they're, you know, they're booming for each other. They're holding the mics. As you get older and your time gets a little bit more precious, maybe you're not holding the boom for your friends or you're not operating the camera. 
but you're definitely willing to lend your services or come in for a day or, and more of it's really information. You know, it's, it's sort of vetting different distributors to friends that are going through that process where they're trying to get their films distributed or film festival strategies or referring a friend's film to a film festival that you think may not get looked at otherwise. As it happens, Jeff has a lot of festival experience to draw on now. Ever since his directorial debut premiered at Tribeca last year, he's been on the road with his film, crisscrossing the country on a different type of stand-up tour, namely introducing his film. Now at a time when television is siphoning away both filmgoers and filmmakers, that ability to get up close and personal with audiences becomes more and more of an indie privilege. We had, we were lucky. We had a nice, from Tribeca, we played a lot of other festivals. I think I ended up going traveling to about 10 maybe as many as 15 festivals this year. It's been kind of crazy, and I still have a couple more coming up. I'm going to Oxford, Mississippi next weekend, and San Luis Obispo after that. So it's a lot of travel. It's been it's been an awesome year to see the country and to meet a lot of different filmmakers who are at my level, some b- bigger than my level. You know, Met, met some interesting folks. Got to meet Brian Cranston. Some folks like that are along the way too, which is always good. Hopefully, if you have to send him a script down the road, it's uh, coming in a little less cold. But the more important relationships tend to be the ones of people at your level who are doing interesting things, doing interesting films, making films that I would never think to make myself or shooting with different technologies. Um, you're just learning a lot along the way and developing that community. And then the festivals themselves, for a lot of films, uh, like we're lucky enough to have theatrical distribution in May, but for a lot of films, your festival run might be the only time people are going to see these films in theaters with audiences. And so that's a great thing. And also it's a way to... I think you have to nourish the film festival audiences and vice versa. These film festivals create a reason to make an independent film. I think, like I said earlier, TV is sort of becoming the place for these kind of independent, what used to be independent film storytelling is now ending up a lot more in TV, but also I don't think anyone wants independent film to just die away. So I think the festivals are really supporting that kind of storytelling. And I think for younger you know for for first-time filmmakers like myself having a festival as a target is a great motivation to go all right well i know i'm going to make this movie and even if it doesn't ever get distributed i know it's going to get an audience hopefully it'll further my career hopefully i can get an agent a manager and start maybe making films at a larger budget or maybe working in the studio side of things the downside of all these festival interactions is the time it takes away from focusing on your next creative endeavor as much as we all might crave having a festival darling on our hands there's an opportunity cost here that needs to be considered too. Yeah, I've just gone through that myself. You know, I thought I could write while going to all these festivals and it kind of put, it definitely set me back a couple, probably set me back three or four months on writing next projects because you just, you know, a lot of your free time, your weekends, it's going to these festivals and recovery time and all that stuff. There's definitely an opportunity cost and I think I've hit that. I'm now at the point where like if a festival wants me to come out, I might sometimes say no as much as I'd like to be there just because I can't, you know, at some point, you got you can only pat yourself on the back so much for a past accomplishment, and you have to move on to hopefully make the next thing. Um, the one thing I will say to, for, to first-time filmmakers or newer filmmakers, I, I almost always think it's better um, to hold and edit your film longer than you think. Uh, the biggest mistake I think people make is they submit films that are still in, almost in a rough-cut phase, or they're not, they really haven't edited the movie as harshly as they could, or been as hard on the edit as they could before submitting to Sundance or to Tribeca or to, you know, one of those t- kind of top, you know, South by Southwest. I see a lot of people submit an early cut, hoping that the programmers will see the promise in the film. 
And I think that's a big mistake. I think that you should always, you're always better off waiting longer to, to make sure that's really the best possible cut you have to put forward. Because I've worked on a few films that we submitted early cuts, got no interest. And then sometimes a year later, like with Slamdance, for instance, they watched a better cut of the film and we got in. Now, Sundance won't even look at your film again if you, you know, they have to have that policy. I always think be patient, make sure you get into the best festival possible. Because some people get impatient, they don't get into the big festivals, but then they edit the film down and they play at a smaller tier, tier festival, which can make it much harder for you to get the kind of distribution eyes on it that you might want. In practice, of course, being patient can be very taxing on both the filmmakers and their investors. After toiling so long on a project, who wouldn't want to push for the instant gratification of a quick payoff? Holding out for something better requires fortitude and some skillful management of expectations. Yeah, I mean, that happened to us, and that happened to us on the distribution side. There was a few offers out there that we could have taken, but we kept pushing, and, and Haley Warwango, our sales rep at UTA, you know, stuck in there with us, and we kept, you know, fighting to get better terms and, and, and get a theatrical release and things that we really wanted, but there was a big part of me, too, that was like, well, do we just take this, like, you know, VOD-only deal and just move on? So it, patience is tough, because you make a film, you want to get it out there immediately, and meanwhile, your career... Right, you make a film, no one's seen it, and so for two and a half years in between, you're sort of like a filmmaker that no one knows about. So that can be frustrating too. Well, the good news is that patience proved a virtue in this case. Instead of landing just a VOD deal, Jeff Grace's directorial debut, Folk Hero and Funny Guy, will get a simultaneous theatrical and VOD release on May the 12th. A double exposure that will also assure him of getting all those important film reviews that come with movie house releases. In nabbing the worldwide rights to the film, Nolan Gallagher, the chief of Gravitas Ventures, said it was, quote, impossible to resist the witty and memorable characters of what he also called a laugh-out-loud bromance. If he's right, and audiences do respond in sufficient numbers, then Jeff's backers, including the retirement film chief, will have a good shot at making good on their investments. And who knows, Jeff's own filmmaking career will take off to such an extent that he too can start to contemplate setting up a self-directed retirement plan for himself. Not that anyone ever retires from filmmaking. You just stop holding that mic boom. Well, that's all for this week. Join me next week when our next guest shares his experience investing in action thrillers. Until then, remember to keep editing that festival film.